Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to the Global News Hour. On today's show, the fallout from the Colorado Supreme Court decision to remove Donald Trump from a primary ballot in the state continues with his competitors weighing in. Once again, Vivek Ramaswamy impresses. More on this story in the final segment of today's show. Meanwhile, polling numbers for independent RFK Jr. continue to rise as the screws are tightened on Trump. Those in Washington, D.C. are fearing the release of the names of 180 Epstein Associates. And Kuwait has a new emir. A poor turnout in Iraqi elections and Pakistani former prime ministers say Pakistan has no one to blame for its failures but itself. This is Compass with Jason Olborn. And first today, the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has completed his year-end news conference where he faced several questions related to the Israel-Gaza war. When asked about the uh, ever-growing Gaza casualty count, which neared 20,000 today, he said it is clear that the conflict will move and needs to move to a lower intensity phase. The top diplomat also argued that US leadership is still wanted in the Middle East, despite widespread criticism of the US response to the war. We continue to believe that Israel does not have to choose between removing the threat of Hamas and minimizing the toll on civilians in Gaza. It has an obligation to do both, and it has a strategic interest to do both. We're more determined than ever to ensure that out of this horrific tragedy comes a moment of possibility for Israelis, for Palestinians, for the region to live in lasting peace and lasting security that out of this darkness comes light. Antony Blinken has said that Washington has a clear strategy for the future of Ukraine, but warned that financial support is wearing thin as an aid package stalls in Congress. Speaking at his end-of-year press conference, Blinken said that 2023 has been a year of profound tests as Washington attempts to navigate a series of global challenges in Ukraine, Gaza and elsewhere. But as signs grow, particularly among Republicans, that US enthusiasm to continue to support Ukraine is in its near two-year conflict with Russia is waning. Lincoln said to reporters that Washington has a concerted strategy for the future of the country. We have a very clear plan, he said, to make sure that Ukraine can stand on its own two feet, militarily, economically, democratically, so that these levels of support and assistance will no longer be necessary. The first of which he suggested was to free up additional financial aid for Ukraine so that Kiev can meet its intermediate challenges. We have to help Ukraine get through the next period of time, get through this winter, get through the spring and summer, he added. Also, I'm also focused on the fact that they have their own plans to continue. Pressure from Democrats and even Ukrainian President Zelensky himself have so far failed to persuade Republicans in Congress to rubber stamp a $50 billion military aid package for Kiev. Dissenting voices in the legislature have insisted that the White House agree on border security provisions as a condition of the deal. Without approval from Congress, Lincoln warned that financial aid will rapidly dwindle. There is no magic pot we can draw from, he said. The assistance, the support that we have designated for Ukraine, that is running out. 
that is running down, we are nearly out of money and we're running out of time. Lincoln also stated that the US will continue efforts to encourage other countries to provide further support for Kiev and ensure that Russia's operation is a strategic failure. Meanwhile, Israel has launched airstrikes on several positions in southern Lebanon, targeting Hezbollah. The Lebanese armed group says six fighters were killed in the past 24 hours. Well, yes, a series of airstrikes targeting what they're calling Hezbollah positions along the border. As of late, Israel has increased the intensity, the pace, the scope of its attacks. But the attacks are also becoming more direct surgical strikes, direct hits. The casualty toll suffered by the Lebanese armed group Hezbollah really is testament to that. Six fighters in the past 24 hours. In the past week, Hezbollah lost 17 fighters. Now, since the conflict began along the border 11 weeks ago, the group lost 113. So you can see the relatively high death toll in recent days. Now, sources are telling us that Israel is using technology. It is a technologically advanced army. It has drones in the sky. They, they don't leave the skies of southern Lebanon, just not, not just along the border, but in other areas of Lebanon considered to be Hezbollah strongholds. They are also intercepting telecommunications equipment. In the first few weeks of the conflict, Hezbollah attacks really concentrated on targeting Israeli surveillance towers, cameras along the border. It wanted to blind the enemy, but there's only so much it can do with drones in the skies, 24-7 in the skies. Now, Israel, no doubt, stepping up the pressure. It is part of a negotiating tactic because what Israel wants is for Hezbollah to agree to withdraw from the border, to pull back from the border so that the tens of thousands of Israelis can return to their homes in northern Israel. That was Zain Koda for Al Jazeera. The American embassy in Australia monitored rallies in support of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange for anti-US sentiment. The Guardian has reported citing declassified documents. The US State Department has released the relevant files on a freedom of information request to investigative journalist Stefania Maruzzi, who shared them with Guardian Australia, the outlet said in an article on Tuesday. The documents detail the response of the US embassy in Canberra to events of 2010 when the WikiLeaks website published classified materials alleging American war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan that Assange had received from U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. According to the declassified records, the U.S. Embassy Regional Security Office had been monitoring rallies in support of Assange that were held across Australia following the revelations and reported its findings to Washington via diplomatic channels. The demonstrations have all been peaceful and generally number in the range of a few hundred persons. Embassy RSO notes the rallies have featured very little, if any, anti-American sentiment. The cable dated December 17, 2010, read as cited by The Guardian. WikiLeaks support has held a recent demonstration in Canberra's central business district and made no attempt to march to the US Embassy or direct any ire at, at other American interests, it stressed. However, the same file warned that Assange, who is an Australian citizen, had been gaining increasing sympathy in the country particularly on the left. The embassy also wrote to Washington that the Australian media continues to have a field day with the leaked cables. According to diplomats, the reporting on the issue in the country had been sensationalist. Assange, who has been held at the high-security Belmarsh Prison in London since 2019, is now fighting his extradition to the US. 
In America, the journalist faces 17 charges under the US Espionage Act, which could see him slapped with a 175-year sentence. The 52-year-old journalist has argued that he violated no laws and that his publication on top of top-secret documents was legitimate journalism protected by the US Constitution. WikiLeaks said on Tuesday that the UK High Court of Justice in London would consider what could be Assange's final appeal against being handed over to the US on February 20 and 21. The May, uh, that may be the final chance for Assange to prevent his extradition to the US, WikiLeaks warned in its statement. On June the 6th, a UK High Court judge rejected all eight grounds for his motion backing the 2020 extradition order. The judge also struck down parts of the January 21 ruling, which had turned down Assange's extradition due to condition concerns about a risk of suicide and poor health. This possible final appeal will be the last opportunity to fight extradition in the UK. The next step for lawyers could be to bring in the case for human rights. The US and Venezuela have reached a deal to swap 10 American prisoners for a jailed ally to, of President Nicolas Maduro, the latest sign of improving relations between Washington and Caracas. The White House said Wednesday that the deal secured the release of 10 US citizens from Venezuela, including six people who it said had been wrongfully detained. As part of the agreement, US President Joe Biden granted clemency to Alex Saab, a Colombian businessman and Maduro ally who has been being held in a Miami jail, awaiting trial on a charge of money laundering. Saab was released from custody and returned to Venezuela on Wednesday. The Venezuelan government said US prosecutors have accused Saab of siphoning off $350 million from Venezuela via the US in a scheme that involved bribing Venezuelan government officials, and he has denied the charge. The government of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela celebrates with joy the libertarian and return of to his homeland of our diplomat Alex Saab, who until today was unjustly kidnapped in a US jail, the Venezuelan government said in a statement. Reporting from Bogota, Colombia, journalist Alessandro Rampietti said Saab was seen as a being very close to the Venezuelan leader. Saab is a Colombian entrepreneur, a very close ally of Maduro, a person who is seen here as a bagman for the Venezuelan regime. Rampietti reported. The White House said Venezuela had also agreed to the release of at least 20 Venezuelan prisoners, including political detainees. Prisoner swap talks were facilitated by Qatar. The White House said Qatar's chief negotiator met with Maduro last week. Venezuela also returned to the US fugitive Malaysian businessman Leonard Glenn Francis, known as Fat Leonard, who is implicated in a US naval bribery case, the officials said. And Kuwait's new emir is due to be sworn in parliament on Wednesday. Sheikh Meshul Al Ahmed Al Sabah is succeeding his half brother, Sheikh Nawaf, who died on Saturday. The new Emir of Kuwait, Sheikh Michal al-Ahmed al-Sabah, is said to take an oath at a special session of the National Assembly. But before that, his duty was to lay the late Emir to rest. Sheikh Michal shed a tear for his brother. Sheikh Michal had already been de facto leader since 2021, when ailing Sheikh Nawaf handed over his duties. He was deputy chief of the National Guard and head of state security for over a decade. But it was when he was named Crown Prince at the age of 80 in 2020 that thrust him into the political limelight. I believe by witnessing what His Highness was able to accomplish in the last two years, plus what is known about his character and his leadership at the National Guard, he's a reformist. Kuwait is unique in the region. It has an elected parliament, a government appointed by the Emir, but a principle of ruling by consensus. 
the selection of the Crown Prince must be put before Parliament to be voted on and must receive a two-thirds majority. Over the last few days, Sheikh Michel has been receiving dignitaries. It's a role he has been doing for two years as a Crown Prince, but now he can make it his own. Kuwait did not take part in the blockade of Qatar imposed by Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE and Bahrain and it was instrumental in brokering a deal that ended the blockade in 2021. I think uh, the policy of Kuwait foreign policies will remain as it is. Zero enemies, a lot of friends, uh, whether it's regional or international. Flags continue to fly at half-staff in the capital, but the winds of change may not come with this Amir. But when his successor is announced with hopes, it will be someone that can take the next generation forward. The husband of a woman who stabbed her three children to death before killing herself is now suing the doctor and hospital that oversaw her care. Katika Perinovich, 42, murdered her children Claire, 7, Hannah, 5 and Matthew, 3, one by one before taking her own life inside their Tullamarine home northwest of Melbourne in Australia on January 14th, 2021. Their father, Tom, had been out buying his family a new television set when the tragedy happened. His wife had been suffering from psychosis when she murdered her children. Mr Perinovich has since filed a writ with the Supreme Court alleging negligence by his wife's general practitioner, Dr Abid Ur-Rahman and Melbourne Health, which operates under the name Northwestern Mental Health. Arnold Thomas and Becker managing partner Lee Flanagan said Mr Perinovich had suffered through a traumatic experience. We've issued a claim against the hospital and doctor that the wife sought treatment from. He said, our investigations will seek to determine whether the two defendants had been negligent in their treatment and management of their wife's mental health. The lawsuit alleges that Mr Perinovich suffered severe psychiatric injury. His wife had been under the care of Dr Rahman and NWMH between November 9, 2020 and January 14, 2021 the day of the tragedy, according to the lawsuit. Mr Perinovich had earlier spoken out about his wife's decline in mental health. She resigned from the clinic where she'd worked as a physiotherapist for 16 years out of the blue at the end of 2020 and had suffered mentally during Melbourne's lockdowns. She went to see her local doctor after feeling anxious, paranoid and exhausted. She was referred to the Royal Melbourne's Hospital Mental Health Department. She was placed on medication after her second appointment. The coroner's report into her death was handed down in November of last year. Coroner Audrey Jamieson stated that she was unable to say with any degree of certainty that the mother's death was preventable. We do, however, find that the mental health treatment was provided to Katika Perinovich to be suboptimal in the circumstances, she stated. I acknowledge and accept appropriate restorative and preventative measures have been taken by Northwestern Mental Health since the incident. Judge Jamieson made no findings on what impacts Victoria's lockdowns had in contributing to the sudden mental illness illness suffered by Ms Perinovich or those tasked with helping her. The Royal Melbourne Hospital offered their condolences to the family in a statement. And former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Nawaz Sharif, has blamed internal issues including military interference in politics and governance for the country's deep economic crisis as he seeks another term as PM in next year's general elections. Sharif was speaking at an event on Tuesday at the Pakistan Muslim League uh, Nawaz, which is one of the two main opposition parties in the country. The state uh, the Pakistani economy has reached today was not done by India, the US or even Afghanistan. Sharif told the news agency PTI, we shot ourselves in the foot. 
The military imposed a government on this nation by rigging the 2018 pulse, which led to the suffering of the people and the downfall of the economy. Pakistan is facing its worst economic crisis since independence from British rule back in 1947, with food and fuel prices soaring and a great chunk of the population falling below the poverty line. The IMF in July approved a $3 billion bailout for Pakistan to prevent it from defaulting on debt payments. On Tuesday, the World Bank's Board of Executive Directors approved $350 million in financing for the second resilient institutions for sustainable economy operation, continuing to provide aid to the cash-strapped nation, Reuters reported. The three-time former Prime Minister in 1993, 99, and 2017 also blamed judges for legitimising alleged military dictatorships in the country. Judges Garland and military dictators and legitimise their rule with they break the constitution, he claimed. When it comes to a prime minister, the judges stamp out his ouster. Sharif, who is 73, was referring to his own ouster as the prime minister three separate times. Most recently, the military establishment moved him from power in 2017 to pave the way for PTI party supremo Imran Khan to come to power. That year, Sharif was jailed on corruption charges, disqualified for life from holding public office, and eventually entered a self-imposed exile in London. A Sharif-led government was also overthrown in 1990 by Pakistani General Pervez Musharraf, who would go on to become the president of the nation. From 2000 to 2007, Sharif was in exile in Saudi Arabia. Sharif uh, returned to Karachi in October of this year to kickstart his party's campaign ahead of elections in January next year. Meanwhile, Imran Khan, who was sworn in as Prime Minister in 2018, was eventually removed from his post in 2022 through a no-confidence motion passed in the lower house of parliament. Khan was charged by a special court in October with breaching state secrecy laws over an alleged conspiracy to reveal what he characterised as proof of US interference in orchestrating this removal from power last year. Meanwhile, Khan, who is currently in prison, has used artificial intelligence to deliver a speech to his supporters. The four-minute address was broadcast during a virtual rally attended by more than four and a half million people across social media. In his message, Khan accused the Pakistani government of kidnapping and harassing activists from his party. He also stressed that his determination for real freedom is very strong, thanking the PTI social media team for this historic attempt to circumvent government restrictions. And the initial results of the Iraqi provincial election were announced on Tuesday. The ruling Shia alliance took the largest block of votes in the capital and in the south, according to Iraq's high independent uh, electoral commission, 41% of eligible voters participated in the process despite calls for boycotts. With more, we join this report. The results are in. Iraq's provincial election marks a major victory for the coordination framework, an umbrella block of Iraqi Shiite parties aligned with Iran. Candidates they back have dominated in at least eight provinces. Another major winner is ousted Speaker Mohammed al-Halbusi, whose bloc Taqaddum, or Advance, took the most votes in the capital Baghdad and Al-Ambar province. The coordination framework has won despite the boycott, but those who boycotted also won because they proved their point and strength. This divide could help end the monopoly of the power of the ruling coalition. The Electoral Commission announced the results the day after the ballot. It says voter turnout was at 41%, despite a call by the main opposition, the Sadrist movement led by Shia leader Moqtada Sadr, to boycott the election. 
They changed the number of voters and slashed around 8 million from the list. The real percentage is below 30 percent. The discussion about the turnout and the legitimacy of the vote isn't expected to end at any time soon. Now, aside from the debate about the politically motivated boycotts, this is the second consecutive election that more than half the Iraqi population has chosen not to vote. Prompting questions about the public's confidence in the entire political system. Ali Hashem Al Jazeera, Baghdad. Former U.S. Senate aide Tara Reid, who was accused, who has accused U.S. President Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her while serving as a senator, filed a civil rights complaint against the FBI on Wednesday. Reid's attorney says the federal government sought to intimidate and harass her during and after the 2020 election campaign. In a complaint sent to the Office of the Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Justice, Reid called for an investigation of FBI practices that target Biden family whistleblowers for exercise of their First Amendment right to free speech. According to a press release by Dr. Jonathan Levy, her London-based attorney, Reid also requested copies of all information about her that the FBI may have obtained through unconstitutional surveillance, search and seizure tactics to have her FBI file expunged. In a letter to the Department of Justice seen by RT, Levy described how the FBI and in particular its Sacramento, California office allegedly began an operation against her after April of 2019 in order to silence and surveil her and if possible, falsely arrest her for criminal activities. Reid was not an agent or associate of former President Donald Trump, whom Biden challenged in the election, nor was she sponsored by any political organization or made any monetary demands of Biden. Levy noted, the attorney also pointed out that there was no indication of her involvement in any criminal activity. According to the complaint, the FBI launched its operation for the specific purpose of unlawfully intimidating, harassing, surveilling, discrediting, as well as potentially arresting Reid. Among those allegedly involved, Levy named Director Christopher Ray, Special Agent Michael Catalano, and NCAI-1 Supervisory Resident Agent Andrew Forrestal. The lawsuit demands an investigation of FBI practices that led to whistleblower becoming the target of a federal grand jury investigation and a criminal probe in California, even after the requested FBI protection from death threats. The DOJ Inspector General was asked to investigate the extent of the FBI's alleged surveillance of Reid, including her social media communications and financial accounts, and to provide copies of all records thus obtained before they are expunged from her FBI dossier. Earlier this year, she sought asylum in Russia to guard against a kangaroo court in the United States. And coming up after the break, RFK Jr. climbs in the polls, putting Democrats on high alert. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Today's News Talk Radio. We, we, we do have some big news. What is it? Yeah, what is it? What is it now? TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Hamas has released a video praising Australia, Canada and New Zealand for backing calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. The US is losing interest in Ukraine as its seemingly endless stream of cash dries up and it's been revealed Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered a blunt message to Joe Biden during their meeting in California warning Beijing will reunify Taiwan with the mainland and says Washington must mind its own business. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. 
TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Welcome back. A 68-year-old former gynecologist has been sentenced to 24 years in jail and was accused of helping draft a letter for the interim government that supervised the killing of Tutsis in Rwanda. He was also accused of participating in meetings that organised roundups of Tutsi civilians in the southern Rwandan prefecture of Butare, where he lived at the time. Mr Munyi Yamana, who moved to France months after the genocide, denied any wrongdoing and his lawyers said they planned to appeal the verdict. Public prosecutor had sought a sentence of 30 years during the six-week-long trial at the Assis Court in Paris. Elsewhere, a court in Brussels on Tuesday also found two Rwandans guilty of genocide and war crimes committed in their native country. With more, we join this report from African News. A former Rwandan doctor has been jailed for 24 years by a French court for his involvement in the 1994 genocide. Sustem Muyamana was on Wednesday found guilty of genocide, crimes against humanity and participation in a conspiracy to repair these crimes. But what he did as a rescue gesture was interpreted as an act of cruelty in fact, and that is revolting. It revolts me. The 68-year-old former gynecologist was accused of helping draft a letter for the interim government that supervised the killings of the Tutsi. He was also accused of participating in meetings that organized roundups of Tutsi civilians in the southern Rwandan prefecture in Buta, where he lived at the time. Voting in the Democratic Republic of Congo is currently taking place, but there have been delays in voting up to six hours with 18 candidates vying to take the office of president from incumbent president Felix Tshisekedi. During the campaign, he asked voters for five more years to consolidate the gains. His main challenger, Moise Katumbi, 58, a wealthy businessman and former governor of the mining province of Katanga in the southeast, was particularly targeted by his attacks. Other presidential candidates include Martin Fayalu, 67, who claims victory was stolen from him in the 2018 presidential election, and Dr. Dennis McWedgie, 68, Nobel Peace Prize winner for his work with women victims of war rape. With the scheduled opening hours of 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. local time, many here say they had faced long delays. There was a little delay. Well, maybe not a little delay because we were here for six hours and they just opened the office at 7.45. So it was this little delay that caused this chaos at the entrance. For the first time, Congolese nationals living in five other countries will be able to cast their ballots, but here in the troubled eastern region, up to 1.5 million people may not be able to do so due to insecurity, according to the Human Rights Watch. It's quiet. You see the atmosphere. It's really quiet. People are determined to vote and get the leaders that they deserve. Some 44 million people are registered for the single round elections where incumbent president Felix Tshisekedi is a candidate for a second term against 18 other candidates. Voters are also choosing parliamentary, provincial and municipal representatives. 
62% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck as holiday spending credit card debt rise. Meanwhile, a new poll has seen that RFK Jr. has leapt ahead in the polls and threatens both Democratic President Biden alongside Donald Trump. It is clear now that Kennedy continues to gain traction amongst the Hispanic community who are looking for something new as they, like most Americans, are struggling with the cost of living and other difficulties in daily life. Let's play that clip now. Look amongst Hispanic voters. We basically have a three-way tie between Donald Trump, Joe Biden, That's and RFK amazing. Jr. He's getting 31% on average of the last two Quinnipiac University polls. It's his best racial or ethnic group. He's doing far better amongst them than he has among white voters and slightly better than he does among African-American voters. I mean, but this is incredible. You know, when you hear, I just keep this number up for a second, yeah. people talk about this race. Everyone understands Kennedy is playing a role right now. Yes. But it's still put forth as a two-horse race. Yes. And that's um, not a two-horse race. That is not. That is a that is a that is a 30-30-30, yeah. um, which is incredible. So does Kennedy have room to grow his support from here? We've seen, and I think I remember when the first poll came out, it was at 19%. People were shocked. Then the second, then the third. It's been eight months. Yeah. It's been steady, which is obviously incredible. Meanwhile, over in Canada, the very same cost of living pressures apply. And more and more Canadians are realising the impossibility of buying their own homes. Canada has a very high level of red tape and despite a lot of land, government interference prevents a balance between home building and said demands. Looking more and more like a genuine alternative to the Trudeau government, Canada's Prime Minister-in-waiting explains his very simple campaign slogan, bring it home. I want people to bring home more of their paycheck with lower taxes. I want to bring home more paychecks for everyone by bringing home all of the industries that the government's been pushing out into other countries by blocking our pipelines, blocking our factories and industries. I want those to come back here rather than just importing from abroad. We should bring home all of those jobs and paychecks to our country, our businesses, our money, our future needs to be brought home to this country. Um, bring it home also means getting things done. In a country where we've got a prime minister who's always uh, giving lofty rhetoric and beautiful words, coming with large, large price tags, but doesn't actually get anything done, bring it home means actually delivering it, not just making a speech, not just talking about it, but getting it done, bringing it home. And it's also, I think home is, it's like deep, anthropologically powerful word. I mean, from the time, you know, thousands of years ago, you can just imagine uh, people, the most important object to them uh, was a home where they could be safe uh, and secure and protecting one's home uh, would, would have been an innate human need. And now our young people can't even afford homes, a place to feel safe. So we want to bring homes they can afford. But more than that, uh, there's a lot of people in this country who tell me they don't recognize Canada right now. I have immigrants who come to me and say they came here and they relate it with the country they found 10, 15 years ago. But it's changed so much into something they no longer recognize, or it's actually changed in many cases into something they ran away from in other places around the world. Some even tell me they want to go back. I have people here who've lived here all their lives who tell the same story. That they don't recognize the country. Um, and I think we, we have to have the empathy to understand how, how hellish the last six or seven years have been for a lot of people. Um, and I wanna say to them that there is hope and bring it home is really about hope. 
that we can bring home loved ones drug-free, we can bring our young people to homes they can afford, we can bring home more of the fruits of our labor, that we can bring home the country we love, that people should have hope that this is their land, this is their country, and this is their home. Why is common sense seemingly so uncommon? It seems that we have political turnover speeding up more and more. The change of government to these so-called far-right parties seems to be moving along at a rate of knots, almost as if the globalist strategy only seems to appeal to those who are either thriving or struggling. In other words, they've got something that they want to give to change as their legacy to the planet, or they're struggling so badly that they will just go along with what the government tells them to do. Meanwhile, Klaus Schwab admitted in a recent video that we played here on this show that it is the middle class that remains the sticking point for the globalist plans to change the world into their agenda. And coming up after the break, all the details and analysis of the Colorado decision to remove Donald Trump from the presidential primary ballot. This is Compass on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. A few weeks ago, it was brutally cold across Europe. That colder air moved into the northern and central parts of Siberia, and it's now moving through China, where they've had some of the coldest temperatures that they've ever recorded. Now, this cold air, when it comes out over the Pacific, is going to cause a very interesting phenomenon. We're going to see this big upper air low pressure system really get cranking around the Aleutians. When that happens, the whole weather pattern in North America, which has been very, very warm, is going to change. What'll happen is you'll get a big upper high pressure system that will develop in response to that over the western part of North America. And that will send the Arctic air down into North America, especially the central and eastern part of the United States for January. Now, what's interesting is this is known as the bathtub slosh theory, except that it doesn't really slosh. The theory is if it's cold on one side of the pole, a month to a month and a half later, it gets cold on the other side of the pole. But the way it accomplishes it is through a process where the cold air in Asia moves out over the water, and because the water is warm, causes the development of this big upper air storm, which in turn changes the weather pattern across North America. So we are not only the climate watchdog, but we're the weather watchdog. And while we've had a North American December exactly opposite of last year, well, guess what? Winter quit last year in January and February in North America. It looks like it's going to start coming on gangbusters this year, but not till after Christmas. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive, but I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. 
I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Jason Oborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. The fallout from the Colorado decision to remove Donald Trump from the primary ballot in that state has sparked a typical backlash from the establishment types who are falling over themselves to praise the Supreme Court of Colorado's decision. However, there is a strong opinion that this decision will be appealed and that it may be overturned, which would make this decision by the court a political one. Tucker Carlson explained on his show that Donald Trump was not charged with insurrection and was not at the Capitol on the day, but at the White House instead and had issued a statement calling for peace on the day. Let's play that missing Trump clip now where he called for peace, which was removed from Twitter shortly after being posted. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election. But we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. But go home and go home in peace. Hardly insurrection-like. Meanwhile, Tucker asked why the people on television say that he did lead an insurrection. Here is Carson explaining what the Colorado court did despite Trump never being convicted of insurrection or any crimes. So why were the people on television telling us that Trump led an insurrection? This was, of course, a lie, but it was also a very obvious lie. So clearly we were watching the rollout of a talking point, words crafted for a specific purpose. But what was the purpose? We got an answer to that question yesterday when the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that because he led an insurrection, Donald Trump's name cannot appear on the state's ballot next fall. The four liberal judges who concluded this cited as their justification Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was written in 1868 to keep former Confederate officials from holding office. That was the sum total of their reasoning. Despite the fact Donald Trump has never been convicted by any court of insurrection, and although the 14th Amendment specifically does not apply to the presidency, Donald Trump cannot run for president because he's an insurrectionist. This seemed like lunacy because it was lunacy. 3,000 miles away in El Salvador, there was no question about what was happening. The United States has lost its ability to lecture any other country about, quote, democracy, wrote Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele. And yet in this country, no one on the left dared say that. Instead, Donald Trump's enemies celebrated. The Atlantic Magazine expressed gratitude that unelected judges had, quote, rescued the country from the desires of voters. Weighing in on MSNBC was Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, who explained why, in her opinion, and not necessarily the rule of law is enough to disqualify your political enemies. Look, I believe he incited the insurrection. 
there were big questions around Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and the Colorado Supreme Court has weighed in in a very loud way, making themselves clear. Frankly, we've never had a president try to steal the presidency and engage in insurrection uh, ever before. So Trump's actions are unprecedented. The Colorado Supreme Court confirmed that the district court got it right, that he did engage in insurrection. I think uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has to apply to the presidency, because if not, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. And in a country of laws where no man is, is above another, um, we can't have one office be able to do whatever they want when it comes to rebellion and then be able to be seated in office again. Clearly working overtime to cash in on Trump's latest attempted takedown to prevent the people from choosing who they want to be their president in 2025, the land of the free and home of the brave is a shadow of its former self. Interviewed on MSNBC was Christy Greenberg, the former deputy chief of the Southern District of New York's Criminal Division, who agrees with the decision to remove Trump from the ballot. If he engaged in insurrection, yes, he is an officer and the 14th Amendment would apply to him. It would be a perverse result otherwise to have it apply to members of Congress and others in lower elected officials and not to the president of the United States. So it sounds like Colorado Supreme Court got it right in finding that this should apply to the president and presumably uh, determines that the factual findings of the district court and finding that he engaged in, in the insurrection were were upheld. So it, it is it is a result that is interesting. Uh, it is a result that seems like the right result. The big question will be whether or not it holds, because this is surely going to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I have a lot less confidence that the U.S. Supreme Court will will decide that Donald Trump should be disqualified from the ballot, given that conservative majority on that court. Meanwhile, former Trump White House lawyer Ty Cobb, who has criticised Trump, calling him a disaster for the Republican Party and accusing him of stifling truth, making threats and bullying weaklings into doing his bidding. After Trump was indicted in August of 2023 on charges that he conspired to defraud the government and disenfranchise voters and obstructing an official proceeding, Cobb wrote on Facebook that on the state of mind issues above, there will be evidence from more than one or two witnesses that Trump acknowledged that he lost. That is just the cherry on top of a mountain of evidence that would satisfy the reckless disregard or should have known standards that are alternatives to proving actual knowledge. He knew. He is toast. DC jury, he is done until he wins the election and the fun begins begins all over. Consequently, CNN's Erin Burnett got Cobb onto her show for his thoughts on the Colorado decision, where he explains why Trump will win on appeal. Take a look. I was struck by the majority opinion uh, and the amount of verbiage devoted to the sort of straw men arguments. Um, you know, the real key issue in this case is, is Trump an officer in the of the United States in the context in which that term is used in Article Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, <coughs> right? And and in 2010, you know, um, Chief Justice Roberts explained in Free Enterprise um, that um, that people don't vote for officers of the United States. The Article Two officers of the United States is commonly understood in the Constitution uh, to refer to appointed officials. And to the extent that the president or the vice president are included as an officer or included within uh, the admonitions of the Constitution, 
they are typically highlighted, like in the impeachment clause, which specifically says president, oh. vice president. Um, so I think this case will be handled quickly. I think it could be 9-0 in the Supreme Court. There are multiple competing scholars who who disagree and highlight uh, the point that I just made um, about the multiple Supreme Court decisions, which are three, uh, that um, uh, do not conclude that officers, as used in the context, as this context, uh, are um, uh, include the president or the vice president. And, and, and after, I mean, there have been many constitutional professors, Steve Calabresi of Northwestern, probably the most prominent one, who, after reading you know, all the scholarship, changed his mind. He was originally a supporter of the idea uh, that this outcome was appropriate, but uh, mm. he later concluded, despite his strong feelings against Trump, that Trump would have to be beaten at the ballot box, and I think, uh, sadly, that's the case. Um, so despite the legal arguments showing that Trump is expected to win handsomely in the Supreme Court, it hasn't stopped California joining in on the Take Trump Out party. California Lieutenant Governor, Governor Eleni Kunalakis urged State Secretary Shirley Weber to explore every legal option to remove former President Donald Trump from the 2024 primary ballot claiming California must stand on the right side of history and that this is a dire matter that puts at stake the sanctity of our constitution and our democracy. Noting the list of certified candidates for the 2024 primary must be certified by December 28. The letter from Kunalakis cited the Colorado decision, which she says is about honouring the rule of law in our country and protecting the fundamental pillars of our democracy as the impetus for her call for Weber to act. Colorado decision does not take effect until January 4, giving the US Supreme Court two weeks to intervene in the case. However, the decision to exclude Trump from the primary ballot has not seen a pile-on from Trump's opponents. Every American should be troubled by the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to remove President Trump from the ballot. And that tweet has been seen almost three million times from Robert Kennedy Jr. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy went further to even boycott the primary altogether, urging his other Republican challengers, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley and Chris Christie to do the same. They have just tried to bar President Trump from the Colorado ballot using an unconstitutional maneuver that is a bastardization of the 14th Amendment to our U.S. Constitution. This was a provision, Section 3, that was designed to bar Confederate members, people who switched to the Confederacy, from actually being able to serve. That's very different than what's at issue here, to say the least. This is a hollowed out husk of what the country was built on. The basic principle that we the people select our leadership, not the unelected elite class in the back of palace halls. That's old world Europe, not the United States. That's why I'm making a pledge today that I will withdraw, I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary ballot unless and until Tr Trump's name is restored. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Chris Christie and Nikki Haley do the same thing or else these Republicans are simply complicit in this unconstitutional attack on the way we conduct our constitutional republic. I refuse to be complicit in that. I think what they're doing is wrong. And I think it's up to Republicans to step up and stand up with a spine for our country's future. That's really what's at stake. Whether we the people actually have a say in deciding who leads this country. Yes, it would be easier for other Republicans like me who are running in this race to say, hey, if Trump is sidelined, there's our opportunity. No doubt other candidates are probably privately celebrating with their corporate sponsors. That's not the right thing to do. 
I think the most useful thing that every GOP candidate can do right now is to join me in that pledge. I'll say that I will withdraw from that Colorado GOP primary ballot until Trump's name is restored. This belongs to the people, not to the unelected Democratic cabal of judges in Colorado or any other state. And I demand that Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie do the same thing, or else they're complicit in what the security state is trying to do to shut down Trump. I stand by that and I expect them to do the right thing. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis was interviewed on Newsmax and was asked if he would follow Ramaswamy's lead and also withdraw from the primary race, though he had a very different viewpoint. And real quick, fellow GOP 2024 presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy saying he will remove himself from the Colorado ballot unless Trump's eligibility is restored. Would you do the same? No, I think that's just playing into the left. Um, I think the case will get overturned by the Supreme Court, but I've qualified for all the ballots. I'm competing in all the states and I'm going to accumulate the delegates necessary. That's the whole name of the game in this situation. But I do anticipate that that decision was political and will get reversed. All right, Governor Ron DeSantis, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Looking at the difference between DeSantis and Ramaswamy's actions are telling. Ramaswamy looks energetic and confident, doing what he believes is the right thing to do. Meanwhile, DeSantis is playing by the rule book of politics. Get your ducks in a row and win at any cost in order to gain power. He looks fatigued and somewhat defeated. Meanwhile, the 78-year-old former President Trump seems to be able to use his weakness to gain more strength as his support base simply will not abandon him as they believe the next election is the most important one in their lifetimes, if not longer, and there is much unfinished business to take care of. And... By 1996, Paul Kelly was already an Australian music star on the back of hits like To Her Door and Dumb Things. That year, Kelly was invited to record a song for an annual charity Christmas album organised by fellow musician Lindsay Field. When Paul Kelly discovered his chosen cover song had already been performed on a previous year's compilation, Field encouraged him to write an original. Always one to think outside the box, Paul Kelly wanted to write an entirely unique take on the Christmas Carol. I started thinking, maybe I'll write it from the point of view of somebody who is missing Christmas, who can't get to Christmas, he said. Why can't they get there? Maybe they're overseas and they can't get home. Then I thought, oh, He's in prison. The song wrote itself from there. At five minutes long, with no recognisable chorus and written from behind bars, How to Make Gravy doesn't seem like the right candidate for a Christmas carol classic. Even Paul Kelly himself had doubts that the tune would ever find an audience. You never know what's going to happen to the song after you write them, Paul Kelly told Madeline Morris on ABC Radio in 2017. It was a song that doesn't have a chorus. It's set in a prison, so I never thought it would be a hit song or anything. And so it is that on the 21st of December, which is how the song starts, all about Gravy Day, and we've arrived at Gravy Day just four days ahead of Christmas, and that quintessential Australian Christmas carol will be celebrated, celebrated all around Australia today. And even my family, as part of our Christmas tradition, will be joining a huge group of people at the Civic Theatre in my town to sing along in a chorus to celebrate Christmas this year. What a wonderful time and what a great way to celebrate the end of the year and to have some fun. Coming up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for watching Compass. I'm Jason Olborn for TNT Radio.